You know, as a pastor, I'm involved in a lot of memorial services, a lot of funeral services. Most are for people that I have known, people that I've pastored, people that I have deep, carely, deep, deeply cared about, with others sometimes being complete and, and total strangers. But whether or not I have a relationship with the individual or not, it really doesn't matter. It's a task that I take very, very seriously. And I do my best to try to help the families and the friends to understand the hope that we have in Christ Jesus and the importance of a relationship with him. Because after all, life and death, heaven and hell are very serious matters. But I also do it as a way to help them to grieve over the loss of their loved one because everybody handles grief differently. Some get angry, some get quiet, some can never stop the tears from coming. And yet, interestingly enough, some people maintain an unbelievable sense of humor throughout the whole thing. No matter how people respond, you have to understand it's just their way of managing grief. Speaking of maintaining a sense of humor, I was reading the other day about some rather funny messages or epitaphs that people had etched on their gravestone. I wanted to share a couple of them with you this morning. One man decided to use his name and add a little bit of humor to it. His read, here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. Before one man passed away, he made arrangements for his grave marker to say this, I told you I was sick. <laughs> one woman offered a final jab to her husband that apparently had a know-it-all attitude or status, and she had this etched on her headstone. Now I know something you don't. These are real, I saw these pictures, these are really real. And then my favorite one is this, under the sod and under the trees lies the body of Jonathan Pease. Pease is not here, there's only a pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. <laughs> As those examples show, epitaphs can be humorous. And yet I have seen others that are very moving. And there have been some that are downright inspiring. And today, as we continue in our study from the book of Acts, I want to show you one of the most moving epitaphs that you'll ever read. As far as I know, it was not engraved on this individual's tomb, but God made sure that it was included in the scriptures. And it serves as a powerful testimony to this particular person's life. And the epitaph I'm referring to is found in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, where it says this, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. I want you to think about that. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be said about you when you're gone? I mean, what better epitaph could a person want to have written about them than for it to be said that godly people mourned deeply for you when you left this earthly plane. That is indeed a high compliment. So this morning, based upon what that scripture says about Stephen, I want to examine a record of Stephen's brief life. It's found in Acts chapter six and chapter seven. And as we study it, we are going to learn why Stephen was so admired, why he was so loved. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter six. 
Unfortunately, we are not going to have time to read both of these chapters in their entirety, but I do want to read parts of chapter 6, parts of chapter 7, as well as verses 1 and 2 in chapter 8. But before we read this, let me briefly walk you through how Stephen was brought into the fold of leadership in that first church in Jerusalem. In the first few verses of Acts chapter 6, it tells us that the disciples were trying to solve a problem that had, had arisen. Due to their rapid growth, some of the widows weren't getting their fair share of the food that was to be set aside in order to meet their needs. It was an infamous crisis that led to the creation of deacons. When the apostles instructed that church to choose seven men, to deal with this issue. And we're gonna read about the process in Acts chapter six, verses three through 15. This is our official introduction to Stephen. Acts six, chapter three through 15, I'm gonna be reading from the, the NIV. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you or you can follow along on the screens behind me. Verse three starts with brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to praying and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene, and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Now the culmination of this activity that we just read is the high priest asking Stephen if these charges against him are true. So I wanna offer you a brief synopsis of, of what Stephen proceeded to do after this question was asked of him. It's found in the early part of Acts chapter 7, and I want to encourage you to take this time, some time this week to read both chapters 7 and 8, because Stephen's response is spot on, and I might add, 
It's right in their face. He begins with the historical account of the Hebrew history from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And he talked about Joseph who was sold into slavery in Egypt, but who found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and was made ruler over the affairs of Egypt. He told about the great famine and how Joseph's planning as the leader or ruler over the affairs of Egypt saved the Hebrews from starvation. He talked about Moses, another Hebrew who was born into an Egyptian home, but who God later called to deliver the the Hebrews from slavery and the splitting of the Red Sea. And here's where it gets a little bit dicey. He talks about how Moses told the Israelites that one day God would, would raise up a prophet like him from within their own people. And this, of course, was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he goes on to explain how the people refused to believe and rejected him. Stephen says all of this to help make his point about why he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not blasphemy, but it is the truth. So let's go down to Acts chapter seven, beginning at verse 51, because this is the best and most brutally telling part about Stephen's response. When Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. On to chapter eight, verses one and two. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And here's that moving epitaph I shared with you earlier. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. So as we read about Stephen, the first thing that we see that would make godly men mourn his passing is this. Stephen was truly a spirit-filled person. And this fact is affirmed at least four times in these two chapters. First in verse three, where it says that one of the requirements to be one of those seven, first seven deacons was that the person must be full of the spirit and wisdom. Stephen was chosen because he measured up. He met that requirement. In fact, the second half of verse five says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Another example 
is found in verse eight, where it says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. This was just another way of describing this particular attribute. And then if you look down at verse 10, where Luke talks about certain Jews arguing with Stephen, it says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Finally, if you'll flip over to Acts chapter 7, verse 55, you'll see that it says in response to this criticism from the Sanhedrin, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen was indeed a spirit-filled person. And if we are to have obituaries like Stephen's, where godly people will mourn our passing, then we too must live our lives in such a way that we are obviously filled by the Spirit of God. Now let's take a minute or two and review exactly what it means to be a Spirit-filled person. A Spirit-filled follower of Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life that God intended them to live. And they do so by submitting to the presence, the power, and the purpose of the Holy Spirit within them. Basically, a spirit-filled person is someone who literally makes Jesus Lord of their entire life. Not parts and bits and pieces, but of their entire life. Their thoughts, their actions, and probably most importantly, their reactions. They allow the Spirit of God to, to fill them and they allow the Lord to, to literally use their flesh to do his will in this world. Here's the definition of a spirit-filled spirit follower by the late Reverend Adrian Rogers. He said, it is Christ in the Christian. You see, in order to be spirit-filled, we must allow Christ to truly live in and not just in us, but through us. And this can happen to all Christians because all Christians receive the Holy Spirit the moment that they accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. We now become, as the scriptures say, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But as Pentecostals, which we are in this church, we believe in another infilling of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues like what happened on the day of Pentecost. And we believe and we have experienced an endowment of power that, that comes from that supernatural moment. Author David W. Osberger has written in practical terms what it means to live a spirit-filled life on the Assemblies of God National website. And I like how he presents it. This is what he writes. He says, incarnation means enfleshing. To put God's word into human form, to express it in human terms, to live it out in a human body, to flesh out the truth of God in the grubby interchange of the workbench or the marketplace. Paul calls it living in the spirit. The spirit-filled life, therefore, reaches beyond an experience in point of time to affect the moment-by-moment -moment realities of life, into the kitchen, on the job, into the classroom, or wherever life is lived. Too long, the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
has been shut up in the prayer closet. While it was intended to be the dynamic that would be manifest in the busy interchanges of life. And he goes on to say this, at times the church, and of course he's referring to the Pentecostal church of which we are a part of, has been more concerned about an initial evidence than permanent life-changing evidences. He's doing a great job here at explaining the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of the experience of, of speaking in other tongues and the endowment of power that, that flows from that experience. We saw this power in action when Peter preached immediately after the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when thousands accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter could have never achieved those results on his own. And I think what David Osberger is trying to stress is the experience of speaking in tongues is designed not to just talk about it and check it off our spiritual growth things to do list. Oh yes, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Praise Jesus. No, instead, when you receive that, there is an expectation that you will utilize that power and live a life guided by the Spirit of God and do the things that God has called you to do. As I said earlier, in order to be spirit-filled, we must allow Christ to truly live in and through us, and this is a reality for all believers because Jesus promised it. If you will remember, on the night of his arrest, he told his followers that he would be leaving them. Naturally, they panicked at the thought of losing their leader. So Jesus lovingly comforted them by saying, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I won't leave you alone. He says, I'm going to send you another helper and he will be even more helpful than I because he, meaning the Holy Spirit, won't just be by your side like I am, but he will dwell within you. Well, a spirit-filled person then is someone who welcomes the spirit's leadership from within and furthermore allows that leadership to extend into all parts of their life and at all times. Their life is literally full of the spirit of God. They allow God to rule every moment of their life and they do so in such a way that it reminds people of Jesus. It's like the famous statement referring to our Lord from St. Athanasius when he said this, he became what we are, meaning Christ came to the earth in the flesh, that he might make us what he is. In other words, God sent Jesus to this earth as a human being to pay for our sin debt and to cleanse us of sin. But then he sent the Holy Spirit to live in and through us, making us truly into Christ-like people. And by the way, the word Christian literally means little Christ. And so these two chapters in Acts tell us that Stephen did this. He, he let Jesus live in and through him. In fact, studying Stephen's life within these two chapters shows us that there are numerous parallels between Jesus and between Stephen. For example, the Bible says that Jesus was full of grace. It says the same thing about Stephen. 
that Jesus performed miracles. According to the scriptures, so did Stephen. Jesus boldly confronted the religious establishment of that day. So did Stephen. Jesus was convicted by lying witnesses. So was Stephen. Both were accused of blasphemy. Both were executed, though innocent of any crime. Both died outside of the city gates and were buried by sympathizers. And both prayed for the salvation of their executioners. Well, let me ask you this morning. Do you do this? Do you let Jesus live through you daily? Are you a spirit-filled Christian? Have you allowed Jesus to indwell you to the extent that you remind people of him? As many of you know, author Lee Strobel was once an avowed atheist, but through the witness of his wife, he became a born-again Christian, and he experienced the life-transforming power of the new birth. I want to read to you what he wrote. My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus, and all she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember I came home one night and kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life. I am ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room to get away from me. Five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy at age five. What was she saying? She never studied the archaeological evidence supporting the biblical accounts like I had. All she knew was her dad used to be this way, hard to live with. But more and more, her dad is becoming different. And if that is what God does to people, then sign her up. At age five, she gave her life to Jesus. You see what I'm talking about here? Strobel invited Jesus into his heart and life. He gave our Lord the reins over his life, and he allowed God to change him from within. And the more Strobel became like Jesus, the more his little girl wanted to know Jesus herself. This is because spirit-filled people remind others of Jesus Christ. And the fact is, the more like Jesus that you and I become, the more people will miss us when we've moved on to heaven. Well, here's another reason that people love Stephen. Stephen took our Lord's great commission personally. He knew that Jesus had commanded his followers to take the gospel to the entire world. And he believed that that command applied to him. He wasn't like many believers who think evangelism is always somebody else's job. I say this because Stephen did not stay in the temple with the rest of the early church. He took the gospel out to his own people, to his own peer group. Let me explain. In Jerusalem, there were two kinds of Jews. There were what you call Palestinian Jews who were from Israel. They spoke Aramaic. And then there were Hellenistic Jews who were descendants of the Jews that had been dispersed through captivity in Babylon. They were born in foreign lands and therefore they spoke Greek. Well, due to these language differences, the latter group of Jews met in their own synagogues scattered throughout the city. The Talmud tells us that there were 480 such synagogues in Jerusalem at that time. Well, Stephen 
himself was a Hellenistic Jew. And I say this because his name was a Greek name. Plus, in chapter 7, when Stephen quotes the scripture, he quotes the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something that a Hellenistic Jew would do. Well, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen went to these Hellenistic Jews and he ministered to them within their synagogues. And while doing so, God performed some great miracles through him and he taught them the gospel with great wisdom and with great clarity. In other words, he took the Great Commission personally by going to his own peer group. He went to people, he went to a people and he went to a place where he knew that he could have the greatest impact. He saw his people, his friends, his coworkers as his responsibility and his, as his personal mission field. Perhaps Stephen was the first one to recognize this powerful principle of missions, that the most effective missionaries are indigenous. What I mean is the best way to win a, a group of people to Christ is to lead one of them to the Lord, and then you commission that one to go out to their own people and continue to spread the gospel. Well, the fact is, my family here at High Point, all of you are indigenous missionaries. You know that, right? There are people within your realm of influence that you have something in common with, and they will be much more receptive to receive the word of God from you than anyone else. I once had a man at this church ask me if I would come and talk to a relative who was in the hospital about Jesus. And I said, you know, I am more than happy to do that but why won't you talk to that person? Well, I'm just uncomfortable. I said, do you understand that they're going to receive this from you much more than they're gonna receive it from some man they've never met in their life who's gonna come in and introduce himself and tell him about Jesus? And again, I was happy to do it, but I convinced the gentleman to do it himself. You've gotta understand, people are going to listen to you because you've built a relationship with them. There is trust there. There is history there. They don't know me from Adam. That doesn't mean God can't work through me, but it surely means God can work through you because you have the ability to share with them and for them to receive something that they might not receive from me. So if you take the, the, the Great Commission personally, like Stephen did, then you will look for opportunities to share your faith with these people. They are your friends. They are your coworkers, they're your neighbors, and, and, and all those people who, who make up your personal assignment, they are a part of your great mission field. Actor Stephen Baldwin is the youngest of Hollywood's famous and sometimes infamous Baldwin brothers. Stephen tells the story of how he came into a relationship with Jesus. He said that since his wife was from South America, they hired a maid from that same region. She didn't speak English, but she sang songs the entire time she worked in their house and cleaned it. Baldwin did not recognize Spanish, but he did recognize one word that kept coming up over and over again in the songs that she sang, and that name was Jesus. One day, they asked their maid with his wife translating why she sang about Jesus all the time. And when he did this, the maid began to laugh. And she told Stephen Baldwin and his wife that she was a Christian. 
And she went on to say the reason she had accepted the job to be their maid is because she felt God led her to do so. In fact, when she was offered the job, she went to her pastor and they prayed. And she felt God was telling her that he would give her an opportunity to leave Baldwin to Jesus and that he would begin his own Christian ministry. That's exactly what happened. First, his wife decided to follow Jesus. And then a year later, Baldwin became a Christian. He gave his heart to the Lord. And when that happened, he took the Great Commission personally, like the Stephen that we are studying here today. He felt that he had a realm of influence that no one else had. And this was his assignment from Jesus. And that realm of influence was obviously Hollywood and the film industry. So the first thing he did was he used his skills to, to, to make a movie to be shown to teenagers about skateboarding. And the film showed these skateboarders doing amazing things on skateboards, but it was also filled with testimonies of Christian teens who themselves were skateboarders. And since Baldwin had an in with the film industry, he felt this was his responsibility to take the gospel there. Well, what about you? Could it be said that you take the Great Commission personally? If not, then I think you need to question whether you are allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you and to use you as Jesus wants to. And I say this because in Luke chapter 19, 10, it tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And if we allow him to be fully Lord of our lives, then we will do the same thing. Now, not everybody welcomed Stephen's witness because it says in Acts 6, 9, opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. A small but, but vocal minority rose up against him and they tried to argue with him concerning the gospel, but they couldn't because Stephen knew the gospels far better than any of them. And since they could not debate successfully against him, they conspired against him and accused him of blasphemy and, and, and for blasphemy against God and the law. And they grabbed Stephen and they took him to stand a trial before a revenge-hungry Sanhedrin, who, as you know, are not at all happy with the faith in the new Christian church. They're trying to shut it down any way that they can. I want you to look at Acts 16, or 6, verses 13 and 14 again. It said, they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And then speaking of Moses... Be sure to look at verse 15 because it says something very interesting. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, he glowed with the very presence of God. Very much in the same way that Moses' face glowed after his time on the mountain when he came down with the Ten Commandments. Well, all of his accusers had to do in order to see how foolish these charges were, was to look at his face and then to remember their history. But it's been said, none are so blind as those who will not see. 
Well, in the way that Stephen answered these charges that were leveled against him, we see a third quality, quality that made people admire him because his response showed that Stephen was a skilled student of the written word of God. Stephen had apparently spent a great deal of time studying the Old Testament. I say this because like Peter, Stephen's reaction to his arrest and questioning came with a scripture-laden sermon. In fact, it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, where he uses 53 verses and covers 2,000 years of Jewish history. And I very briefly gave you some of the topics earlier that, and the people that he referred to. But see, Stephen not only knew the Bible, he knew how to apply its principles and precepts into new circumstances. He was wise with wisdom of God's word. We all know people like him. We know people who know the scriptures well, but they don't just know the scriptures. They know how to appropriately apply them. They know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And the same thing was true about Stephen. In fact, in his sermon, he skillfully wielded the scripture like a literal sword of truth. And please, I want you to understand, this was not some prepared sermon. It was an impromptu response to their false charges. But this, ser this serves to remind us that crisis shows what's inside of us. More than anything else, pressure from the outside brings out what is inside of our hearts. Obviously, Stephen had hidden the word of God deep inside of his heart because that's what came out when he was under this great pressure. We're going to review his main points, and you'll see what I mean, but it's all in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 53. And again, I would really love it if you would take time this week to read it. And as you read this message, you're going to see his first point was to counter their accusation that he had spoken against their beloved temple. He did this by reminding them that the scriptures teach that God is not limited to some kind of a physical structure. In other words, God didn't just dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. Stephen reminded them that God had appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia and to Joseph while Joseph was still in Egypt and to Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai. Then he quoted the prophet Isaiah in verse 4950, through whom God said these words, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made these things? In the second part of his sermon, he encountered, or excuse me, he countered their accusation that he had, mal he had maligned the law of God. With his skillful use of scripture, he basically said, you are one to talk. You have always rejected God's leaders and their words. After all, as the book of Genesis says, the patriarchs rejected their brother Joseph and the people rejected Moses and the commands that God had given him. In fact, as Stephen has pointed out here, they continually rejected God's law and his prophets. And he says this is exactly why God allowed them to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And it, then at this point, Stephen goes for the jugular. 
He said, he said not, only, not only does the, the scripture record the fact that your forefathers disobeyed the law and rejected Moses, but you yourselves rejected and killed the very one that Moses prophesied about. In verse 52 and 53, he says this, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Well, in spite of his skillful use of the scriptures, the Sanhedrin refused to listen, refused to hear. This is now the third time, best I can count, that they've heard the gospel. But they still rejected the message. And in verse 54, we see the manner of their rejection. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And at this point, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that he's having a vision. He sees right into heaven. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And this pushes them to a boiling point. They cover their ears so as not to drown, him out, to drown him out with their shouts. They're behaving like children who run around going, no, 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 I don't want to hear. That's the picture that I get of what these guys are doing. I'm not listening to you. And at this point is where we see the fourth reason that Stephen was so loved and so admired and so missed when he died. Stephen was a man of great courage. I say this because out of this entire terrifying ordeal, Stephen boldly and bravely stood his ground. Despite the intense opposition that he was experiencing, he never backed down. He never compromised. When his powerful enemies threatened him, he fearlessly reiterated, reiterated the gospel message of Jesus. And when in great rage, the Sanhedrin rushed him and dragged him outside of the city and began to stone him to death, Stephen never cried out in terror. He faced a painful and a brutal death with great bravery. By the way, the Greek word used where it said they rushed him, used in verse 57, is the same Greek word that they used in Mark chapter 5, verse 13. It's, it was used there to describe the mad rush of the herd of demon-possessed swine that ran into the Sea of Galilee. It also was used in Acts 19.29 to describe the frenzied mob that rushed into the theater in Ephesus. To put it in more modern terms, folks, these guys completely lost it. Casting aside all dignity, casting aside all uh, propriety, the highest court in Israel was reduced to a howling, murderous mob. But as I said, none of it frightened Stephen. Why wasn't he afraid of what these men were capable of doing to him? Well, perhaps it was because the disciples had taught him what Jesus said about fear is recorded in Luke 12, 5, where he said, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This reminds me of another Christian martyr named Polycarp. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was a pastor of a church in Smyrna. He had been a student of the apostle John. 
His ministry ended in AD 156 when persecution came and they tortured and threw Christians to wild beasts. Polycarp was marched into an amphitheater where a mob was waiting. They were waiting to see what form of pleasure they might experience while watching this old saintly man be murdered. As he stood before the proconsul, he was commanded to deny Christ. But here's how he replied. 80 and six years I have served him and he has never done me any harm. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And as the old man stood before that crowd in that stadium, the governor shouted out to him. He said, I have, I have you destroyed. I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. And here was his answer. You threaten me with fire, which burns an hour and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fires of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on what you will. The gathered crowd began to throw wood and torches to make a fire, and they cheered as this godly man was brought to the stake and as the flames began to curl around his body. And that's when Polycarp stopped while on fire and prayed this prayer for everybody to hear. He said, Lord God, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be a part of the number of martyrs to die for Christ. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, spirit-filled people like Polycarp and like Stephen, they aren't afraid of torture. They aren't afraid of death. The only thing that seems they fear is not pleasing their heavenly father. And this is really how it should be for all of us. Some of you are frightened of the end times. I've talked to you. You're fearful. What are you fearful of? What do you have to be fearful of? Fear God. The one who loves you. John Don, an ancient cleric from the Church of England, said these words. If you fear only God, you'll fear nothing else. If you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. Well, Christians like Stephen, they live to please the Lord. The only fear that they have is not doing so. I want to share an illustration with you that I love that fits so well with this. It's a story of a pianist who was taught by a great master. He worked very hard at honing his skills. And after years of study, he performed his first concert. And the audience so loved his skill as a pianist that they were wildly enthusiastic at the end of his concert. They gave him a standing ovation with loud roaring applause and cheers, and some were even weeping. And the, the concert master congratulated the young pianist by saying, what a triumph for someone who has worked so hard to have such honor. But the pianist was dejected and he was crushed and he said, not everybody was cheering. The concert master replied, well, it's, it's possible not everybody was cheering, but most of them were. Why make so much of it? The young pianist said, there is one man up there in the front row of the balcony who did not stand up and cheer. He is my teacher and I will never be a triumph 
without his approval. That story is very poignant as we talk about this topic today. But I want to contrast it with the experience of Stephen before his death. Remember, according to verse 55, filled with the Spirit, he saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, everywhere else in the Bible, when we see Christ in glory, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. To be seated is to have completed your work. To be seated is to be a ruler who under, who under their feet all things have been placed. But Jesus in this vision is standing. Why? Could it be so that he could stand up and applaud Stephen? Stephen who never gave up? Stephen who told the truth to the very end and was someone who pleased our Lord by the way he lived his brief life on this earth? Could it be that Jesus was giving Stephen some sort of a, of a standing ovation as he welcomed him home? Listen, I am no Stephen, but when I die, I want to know that my Savior has been pleased with my life. How about you? At this point, I imagine you're all admiring Stephen as much as his peers did. And if so, you may be wondering, why did Stephen have to die? Why did he have to die at such a young age? Why did God allow the life of such an awesome young man to be cut short so soon? Well, listen, we don't know all the reasons why God does some of the things that he does. We don't always understand why he allows things. In fact, the Bible makes clear that his ways are not our ways. and makes even more clear that his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. But we do know this. The book of Acts says that there was a man. Do you remember it in my first scripture? There was a man named Saul that was standing by and he was watching Stephen's execution and they laid their cloaks next to him. He was approving of his execution. And as we all know, Saul became Paul. And there has been no greater missionary machine that's ever lived since that man. He wrote half of the books in the New Testament. He took the gospel where it had never gone before. He was instrumental in the, the inclusion of Gentiles into the early church. No Christian has influenced the, the world so profoundly as the Apostle Paul has. Acts 20, tells us that Saul never forgot Stephen's death. So apparently, it had a profound impact upon his life. We also know that Paul's first exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ came through Stephen. Perhaps the memory of Stephen's life and more importantly, the way he stood bravely and the way he died was a part of the catalyst that led Paul, Saul, to decide to become a believer himself. Perhaps this memory helped to fire his passion for Christ. Another thing, Acts 8 tells us that Stephen's death was the beginning of a time of widespread persecution of Christians. Acts 8.1 says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
In Acts 8, 4 through 9, it talks about another deacon named Philip who fled to Samaria and took the gospel there. Because of this, Acts says there was great joy in that city. Philip would not have gone there to share the gospel if it weren't for Stephen's death. It motivated believers like Philip to go out from Jerusalem as they took the gospel with him. In fact, some Bible scholars don't think they fled out of fear, but instead because they felt Stephen's stoning was some kind of a sign from God Almighty. It was a sign that it was time to hit the road with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is because Matthew 10.23, Jesus said, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So we don't always know why things happen the way they do. But we do know that God allows things to happen for our good and for his glory. And hindsight shows us that to be the case. Good, amazing good things came into this world because of Stephen's death. But you know the greatest thing that Stephen experienced is that he went home to be with the Lord. And I am confident that he was honored by God in heaven that very day. Nick, will you come forward and help me to close this down? Stephen, he received this wonderful epitaph that I began this message with because he was spirit-filled. Because he took the great commission personally. Because he was a skilled student of God's word and because of his great courage. And I'm sure after what we have learned here today, that I think we would all agree that he deserved those words to be written about him. So I'll ask you this morning, how about you? How is your obituary shaping up? If you were to die today, would godly people mourn your passing? More importantly, would Jesus be proud of the way you've served him? Would he stand up and applaud your life? I think these are questions that we all need to ponder as we look at the kind of life that we are living and whether or not we are personally participating in the Great Commission. We talked a lot about this last week, but you have to understand that this is what the book of Acts highlights. And that's one of the reasons I chose to continue on in the book of Acts. It's all about the growth of the New Testament church and those who played a part in making it happen. Well, guess what? We are part of the New Testament church as well. And we need to play a part in her growth. And we need to pe lead people to Jesus. I wanna ask you all to stand to your feet, if you would. I'm not gonna have an altar call this morning, that is, unless you wanna come down here and pray. Because here at High Point, the altar is open 24 seven. But this morning, I wanna close this service by praying over you. And I wanna pray that we would all take very seriously our part in the Great Commission. That is something that we take to heart, something that would become a normal part of our thought process and a normal part of our day. 
So I want you to bow your heads with me. And while your heads are bowed, if, if you are here today and you have never received the gift of salvation, first of all, let me start with that. Salvation comes from Christ, from the work that he accomplished on the cross. Well, you can do so this morning. While I pray, you can pray a simple prayer of belief and confession. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved, you'll receive salvation. Just tell Jesus today that you believe in him, you believe he is the Son of God, that he is the only way to God the Father. Tell him that you believe he died on the cross and the blood that he shed atones or erases your sin away. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. He will. The Bible says you will become a new creation. Just pray that while I'm praying this morning. But I'm going to pray a prayer over all of you here today, and I want you to take this prayer to heart. Ask the Lord to make these words that I'm speaking become real to you in your heart, in your spirit, and in your actions. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who died for our sins and for the sins of the world. Lord, we ask that you forgive us that we have lacked in winning souls to the kingdom. And today, Father, we release ourselves as vessels to fulfill our part in the Great Commission. We pray that you will fill us with an ever-burning zeal and a desire to win the loss. We pray that the heart of men shall be receptive to the Word of God, and as they hear, they shall confess Christ as Lord and turn over their lives to Him. And Father, we pray for miracles and signs and wonders to back up our evangelistic efforts. Lord, we pray for a great longing and a thirst for righteousness and truth in the heart of the people in our city, Red Bluff. And we ask for revival to come to our city. So God, use us to be bold, spirit-filled, prayerful, and courageous doers of your word and your will. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And as we leave here today, God, pray that you would guide us by your spirit. Places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Father, I pray that those conversations will be designed to build people up and not tear them down. I ask as we leave here, Father, we will leave shining like bright lights in a very dark world that so desperately needs the love of Christ in their lives. Father, let it shine so brightly that people would approach us and say, what is it that's different about you? And then you open that door for us to share your goodness with them. But God, as we prayed today about the Great Commission, I ask, as I do every week, that you would bring each one of us a God-ordained moment, a moment where someone crosses our path, and it is undeniable that you've opened the door for us to tell them about Jesus. And Father, I pray you'll take fear away. You will allow us to open our mouths and allow your spirit to speak through us, the very thing that that person needs to hear. And whether we lead them to the cross at that moment, Father, we have, we have set in motion their salvation. Because sometimes it's a path. 
Sometimes it takes numerous people saying different things for them to finally cross that line. But God, give us the courage to be a part of that no matter where we fall into it. But that we would be faithful to you and we would open our mouths and speak the truth. God, I pray that everyone in this place would experience what it's like to lead someone to Jesus Christ and the joy that fills your soul when that happens. Because Father, if we all experienced it, we would want to experience it again. And then we would see exponential growth of Christians within this community of Red Bluff and it would start right here at High Point Assembly in our city. So God, would you use us Would you help us to get our fear and our self and kick it aside and say, Holy Spirit of the living God, work in me and work through me as only you can. That's my prayer for this morning, Lord. I pray that this thought, this theme that we've discussed now two weeks in a row would be ever present on our minds this week as we go about our life. And that as we leave here, we would go in love and love those into the kingdom of God that need you so desperately. And I ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.